Twelve Years a Slave Solomon Northup Chapter 19 In the month of June, 1852, in pursuance of a previous contract, Mr. Avery, a carpenter of Bayou Rouge, commenced the erection of a house for Master Epps. It has previously been stated that there are no cellars in Bayou Boeuf. On the other hand, such is the low and swampy nature of the ground, the great houses are usually built upon spiles. Another peculiarity is the rooms are not plastered, but the ceiling and sides are covered with matched cypress boards, painted such color as most pleases the owner's taste. Generally, the plank and boards are sawed by slaves with whip saws, there being no water power upon which mills might be built within many miles. When the planter erects for himself a dwelling, therefore, there's plenty of extra work for his slaves. Having had some experience under Tibeats as a carpenter, I was taken from the field altogether on the arrival of Avery and his hands. Among them was one to whom I owe an immeasurable debt of gratitude. Only for him, in all probability, I should have ended my days in slavery. He was my deliverer, a man whose true heart overflowed with noble and generous emotions. To the last moment of my existence I shall remember him with feelings of thankfulness. His name was Bass, and at that time he resided in Marksville. It'll be difficult to convey a correct impression of his appearance or character. He was a large man, between forty and fifty years old, of light complexion and light hair. He was very cool and self-possessed, fond of argument, but always speaking with extreme deliberation. He was that kind of person whose peculiarity of manner was such that nothing he uttered ever gave offense. What would be intolerable coming from the lips of another could be said by him with impunity. There was not a man on Red River, perhaps, that agreed with him on the subject of politics or religion, and not a man, I venture to say, who discussed either of those subjects half as much. It seemed to be taken for granted that he would espouse the unpopular side of every local question, and it always created amusement rather than displeasure among his auditors to listen to the ingenious and original manner in which he maintained the controversy. He was a bachelor, an old bachelor, according to the true acceptation of the term, having no kindred living, as he knew of, in the world. Neither had he any permanent abiding place, wandering from one state to another, as his fancy dictated. He'd lived in Marksville three or four years, and in the prosecution of his business as a carpenter, and in consequence likewise of his peculiarities, was quite extensively known throughout the parish of Avoyel. He was liberal to a fault, and his many acts of kindness and transparent goodness of heart rendered him popular in the community the sentiment of which he unceasingly combated. He was a native of Canada, from whence he had wandered in early life, and after visiting all the principal localities in the northern and western states, in the course of his peregrinations, arrived in the unhealthy region of the Red River. His last removal was from Illinois, whither he is now gone, I regret to be obliged to say, is unknown to me. He gathered up his effects and departed quietly from Marksville the day before I did. The suspicions of his instrumentality in procuring my liberation rendering such a step necessary. 
for the commission of a just and righteous act, he would undoubtedly have suffered death had he remained within reach of the slave-whipping tribe on Bayou Boeuf. One day, while working on the new house, Bass and Epps became engaged in a controversy to which, as will be readily supposed, I listened with absorbing interest. They were discussing the subject of slavery. I tell you what it is, Epps, said Bass. It's all wrong, all wrong, sir. There's no justice nor righteousness in it. I wouldn't own a slave if I was rich as Croesus, which I am not, as is perfectly well understood, more particularly among my creditors. There's another humbug, the credit system. Humbug, sir. No credit, no debt. Credit leads a man into temptation. Cash down is the only thing that'll deliver him from evil. But this question of slavery, what right have you to your niggers when you come down to the point? What right, said Epps, laughing. Why, I bought them and paid for them. Of course you did. The law says you have the right to hold a nigger, but begging the law's pardon, it lies. Yes, Epps, when the law says that, it's a liar, and the truth isn't in it. Is everything right because the law allows it? Suppose they'd pass a law taking away your liberty and making you a slave. Oh, that ain't a supposable case, said Epps, still laughing. Hope you don't compare me to a nigger, Bass. Well, Bass answered gravely, no, not exactly. But I've seen niggers before now as good as I am, and I have no acquaintance with any white man in these parts that I consider a whit better than myself. Now, in the sight of God, what's the difference, Epps, between a white man and a black one? All the difference in the world, replied Epps. You might as well ask what difference there is between a white man and a baboon. Now, I've seen one of them critters in Orleans that know just as much as any nigger I've got. You'd call them fellow citizens, I suppose. And Epps indulged in a loud laugh at his own wit. Look here, Epps, continued his companion. You can't laugh me down in that way. Some men are witty, and some ain't so witty as they think they are. Now let me ask you a question. Are all men created free and equal as the Declaration of Independence holds they are? Yes, Epps responded. But all men, niggers and monkeys, ain't. And hereupon he broke forth into a more boisterous laugh than before. There are monkeys among white people as well as black when you come to that coolly remarked Bass. I know some white men that use arguments no sensible monkey would, but let that pass. These niggers are human beings. If they don't know as much as their masters, whose fault is it? They're not allowed to know anything. You have books and papers and can go where you please and gather intelligence in a thousand ways, but your slaves have no privileges. You'd whip one of them if caught reading a book. They're held in bondage, generation after generation, deprived of mental improvement, and who can expect them to possess much knowledge? If they're not brought down to a level with the brute creation, you slaveholders will never be blamed for it. If they're baboons, or stand no higher in the scale of intelligence than such animals, you and men like you will have to answer for it. There's a sin, a fearful sin, resting on this nation that will not go unpunished forever. There will be a reckoning yet, Epps. Yes, there's a day coming that'll burn as an oven. 
It may be sooner or it may be later, but it's a coming as sure as the Lord is just. If you lived up among the Yankees in New England, said Epps, I expect you'd be one of them cursed fanatics that know more than the Constitution and go about peddling clocks and coaxing niggers to run away. I was in New England, returned Bass. I would be just what I am here. I would say that slavery was an iniquity and ought to be abolished. I'd say there was no reason or justice in the law or the Constitution that allows one man to hold another man in bondage. It would be hard for you to lose your property, to be sure, but it wouldn't be half as hard as it would be to lose your liberty. You have no more right to your freedom in exact justice than Uncle Abram yonder. Talk about black skin and black blood. Why, how many slaves are there on this bayou as white as either of us? And what difference is there in the color of the soul? Pshaw! The whole system is absurd as it is cruel. You may own niggers and be hanged, but I wouldn't own one for the best plantation in Louisiana. You like to hear yourself talk, Bass, better than any man I know of. You'd argue that black was white or white black if anybody would contradict you. Nothing suits you in this world, and I don't believe you'll be satisfied with the next if you should have your choice in them. Conversations substantially like the foregoing were not unusual between the two after this. Epps drawn him out more for the purpose of creating a laugh at his expense than with a view of fairly discussing the merits of the question. He looked upon Bass as a man ready to say anything merely for the pleasure of hearing his own voice, as somewhat self-conceited, perhaps, contending against his faith and judgment in order simply to exhibit his dexterity in argumentation. He remained at Epps throughout the summer, visiting Marksville generally once a fortnight. The more I saw of him, the more I became convinced he was a man in whom I could confide. Nevertheless, my previous ill fortune had taught me to be extremely cautious. It was not my place to speak to a white man, except when spoken to, but I omitted no opportunity of throwing myself in his way, and endeavored constantly, in every possible manner, to attract his attention. In the early part of August, he and myself were at work alone in the house, the other carpenters having left, and Epps being absent in the field. Now is the time, if ever, to broach the subject, and I resolved to do it, and submit to whatever consequences might ensue. We were busily at work in the afternoon, when I stopped suddenly, and said, Master Bass, I want to ask you what part of the country you came from. Why, Platt, what put that into your head? He answered. You wouldn't know if I should tell you. After a moment or two, he added, I was born in Canada. Now guess where that is. Oh, I know where Canada is, I said. I've been there myself. Yes, I expect you're well acquainted all through that country, he remarked, laughing incredulously. As sure as I live, Master Bass, I replied, I have been there. I've been in Montreal and Kingston, and Queenston, and a great many places in Canada, and I've been in York State, too, in Buffalo, and Rochester, and Albany, and I can tell you the names of the villages on the Erie Canal and the Champlain Canal. Bass turned round and gazed at me a long time without uttering a syllable. How came you here? he inquired at length. Master Bass, I answered, if justice had been done, I never would have been here.
Well, how's this, he said. Who are you? You've been in Canada, sure enough. I know all the places you mentioned. How'd you happen to get here? Come, tell me all about it. I have no friends here, was my reply, that I can put confidence in. I'm afraid to tell you, though I don't believe you would tell Master Epps if I should. He assured me earnestly he'd keep every word I might speak to him a profound secret, and his curiosity was evidently strongly excited. It was a long story, I informed him, and would take some time to relate it. Master Epps would be back soon, but if he'd see me that night after all were asleep, I'd repeat it to him. He consented readily to the arrangement and directed me to come into the building where we were then at work, and I would find him there. About midnight, when all was still and quiet, I crept cautiously from my cabin, and silently entering the unfinished building, found him awaiting me. After further assurances on his part that I should not be betrayed, I began a relation of the history of my life and misfortunes. He was deeply interested, asking numerous questions in reference to localities and events. Having ended my story, I besought him to write to some of my friends at the North, acquainting them with my situation, and begging them to forward free papers or take such steps as they might consider proper to secure my release. He promised to do so, but dwelt upon the danger of such an act in case of detection, and now impressed upon me the great necessity of strict silence and secrecy. Before we parted, our plan of operation was arranged. We agreed to meet the next night at a specified place among the high weeds on the bank of the bayou, some distance from Master's dwelling. There he was to write down on paper the names and address of several persons, old friends in the north, to whom he would direct letters during his next visit to Marksville. It was not deemed prudent to meet in the new house, inasmuch as the light it would be necessary to use might possibly be discovered. In the course of the day I managed to obtain a few matches and a piece of candle, unperceived, from the kitchen, during a temporary absence of Aunt Phoebe. Bass had pencil and paper in his tool chest. At the appointed hour we met on the bayou bank, and creeping among the high weeds, I lighted the candle while he drew forth pencil and paper and prepared for business. I gave him the names of William Perry, Cephas Parker, and Judge Marvin, all of Saratoga Springs, Saratoga County, New York. I'd been employed by the latter in the United States Hotel, and had transacted business with the former to a considerable extent, and trusted that at least one of them would still be living at that place. He carefully wrote the names, and then remarked thoughtfully, It is so many years since you left Saratoga. All these men may be dead, or may have removed. You say you obtained papers at the Custom House in New York. Probably there's a record of them there, and I think it would be well to write and ascertain. I agreed with him, and again repeated the circumstances related heretofore, connected with my visit to the custom house with Brown and Hamilton. We lingered on the bank of the bayou an hour or more, conversing upon the subject which now engrossed our thoughts. I could no longer doubt his fidelity, and freely spoke to him of the many sorrows I'd borne in silence and so long. I spoke of my wife and children, mentioning their names and ages, and dwelling upon the unspeakable happiness it would be to clasp them to my heart once more before I died. I caught him by the hand, and with tears and passionate entreaties, 
implored him to befriend me, to restore me to my kindred and to liberty, promising I would weary heaven the remainder of my life with prayers that it would bless and prosper him. In the enjoyment of freedom, surrounded by the associations of youth and restored to the bosom of my family, that promise is not yet forgotten, nor shall it ever be so as long as I have strength to raise my imploring eyes on high. O oh, blessings on his kindly voice and on his silver hair, and blessings on his whole life long until he meet me there. He overwhelmed me with assurances of friendship and faithfulness, saying he'd never before taken so deep an interest in the fate of anyone. He spoke of himself in a somewhat mournful tone as a lonely man, a wanderer about the world, that he was growing old and must soon reach the end of his earthly journey and lie down to his final rest without kith or kin to mourn him or to remember him, that his life was of little value to himself and henceforth should be devoted to the accomplishment of my liberty and to an unceasing warfare against the accursed shame of slavery. After this time we seldom spoke to or recognized each other, he was, moreover, less free in his conversation with Epps on the subject of slavery, the remotest suspicion that there was an unusual intimacy, any secret understanding between us, never once entered the mind of Epps or any other person, white or black, on the plantation. I'm often asked, with an air of incredulity, how I succeeded so many years in keeping from my daily and constant companions the knowledge of my true name and history. The terrible lesson Birch taught me, impressed indelibly upon my mind, the danger and uselessness of asserting I was a free man. There was no possibility of any slave being able to assist me, while on the other hand, there was a possibility of his exposing me. When it is recollected the whole current of my thoughts for twelve years turned to the contemplation of escape, it'll not be wondered at that I was always cautious and on my guard. It would have been an act of folly to have proclaimed my right to freedom. It would only have subjected me to severer scrutiny, probably have consigned me to some more distant and inaccessible region than even Bayou Boeuf. Edwin Epps was a person utterly regardless of a black man's rights or wrongs, utterly destitute of any natural sense of justice as I well knew. It was important, therefore, not only as regarded my hope of deliverance, but also as regarded the few personal privileges I was permitted to enjoy, to keep from him the history of my life. The Saturday night subsequent to our interview at the water's edge, Bass went home to Marksville. The next day, being Sunday, he employed himself in his own room writing letters. One he directed to the collector of customs at New York, another to Judge Marvin, and another to Messrs. Parker and Perry jointly. The latter was the one which led to my recovery. He subscribed my true name, but in the postscript intimated I was not the writer. The letter itself shows that he considered himself engaged in a dangerous undertaking, no less than running the risk of his life if detected. I didn't see the letter before it was mailed, but have since obtained a copy, which is here inserted. Bayou Boeuf, August 15, 1852 Mr. William Perry or Mr. Cephas Parker. Gentlemen, it having been a long time since I have seen or heard from you, and not knowing that you are living, 
It is with uncertainty that I write to you, but the necessity of the case must be my excuse. Having been born free, just across the river from you, I am certain you must know me, and I am here now a slave. I wish you to obtain free papers for me and forward them to me at Marksville, Louisiana, Parish of Avoyel, and oblige yours, Solomon Northup. The way I came to be a slave, I was taken sick in Washington City and was insensible for some time. When I recovered my reason, I was robbed of my free papers and in irons on my way to this state and have never been able to get anyone to write for me until now. And he that is writing for me runs the risk of his life if detected. The allusion to myself in the work recently issued, entitled A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, contains the first part of this letter, omitting the postscript. Neither are the full names of the gentlemen to whom it is directed correctly stated, there being a slight discrepancy, probably a typographical error. To the proscript, more than to the body of the communication, am I indebted for my liberation, as will presently be seen. When Bass returned from Marksville, he informed me of what he'd done. We continued our midnight consultations, never speaking to each other through the day, excepting as it was necessary about the work. As nearly as he was able to ascertain, it would require two weeks for the letter to reach Saratoga in due course of mail, and the same length of time for an answer to return. Within six weeks, at the farthest, we concluded an answer should arrive, if it arrived at all. A great many suggestions were now made, and a great deal of conversation took place between us as to the most safe and proper course to pursue on receipt of the free papers. They would stand between him and harm in case we were overtaken and arrested leaving the country together. It would be no infringement of law, however much it might provoke individual hostility, to assist a free man to regain his freedom. At the end of four weeks, he was again at Marksville, but no answer had arrived. I was sorely disappointed, but still reconciled myself with the reflection that sufficient length of time had not yet elapsed, that there might have been delays, and that I could not reasonably expect one so soon. Six, seven, eight, and ten weeks passed by, however, and nothing came. I was in a fever of suspense whenever Bass visited Marksville and could scarcely close my eyes until his return. Finally, my master's house was finished, and the time came when Bass must leave me. The night before his departure, I was wholly given up to despair. I had clung to him as a drowning man clings to the floating spar, knowing if it slips from his grasp, he must forever sink beneath the waves. The all-glorious hope, upon which I'd laid such eager hold, was crumbling to ashes in my hands. I felt as if sinking down, down, amidst the bitter waters of slavery, from the unfathomable depths of which I should never rise again. The generous heart of my friend and benefactor was touched with pity at the sight of my distress. He endeavored to cheer me up, promising to return the day before Christmas, and if no intelligence was received in the meantime, some further step would be undertaken to effect our design. He exhorted me to keep up my spirits, to rely upon his continued efforts in my behalf, assuring me, in most earnest and impressive language, that my liberation should, from thenceforth, be the chief object of his thoughts. 
In his absence, the time passed slowly indeed. I looked forward to Christmas with intense anxiety and impatience. I had about given up the expectation of receiving any answer to the letters. They might have miscarried, or might have been misdirected. Perhaps those at Saratoga, to whom they had been addressed, were all dead. Perhaps engaged in other pursuits. They didn't consider the fate of an obscure, unhappy black man of sufficient importance to be noticed. My whole reliance was in Bass. The faith I had in him was continually reassuring me and enabled me to stand up against the tide of disappointment that had overwhelmed me. So wholly was I absorbed in reflecting upon my situation and prospects that the hands with whom I labored in the field often observed it. Patsy would ask me if I was sick, and Uncle Abram and Bob and Wiley frequently expressed a curiosity to know what I could be thinking about so steadily. But I evaded their inquiries with some light remark and kept my thoughts locked closely in my breast.